Hey, welcome everybody to the Data Driven Real Estate Podcast, the podcast for real estate professionals dedicated to driving business success using data. I'm your host, Aaron Norris, and with us today, we've got Tim Harriage. For nearly two decades, Tim has been on the leading edge of real estate uh, all over the investor space, actually. This includes being the founder of 2020 REI Group, founder of B2R Finance, a Blackstone company, founder of the REI Expo, where I met Tim, and a franchisee and development agent for Homevestors of America. So we get to talk a lot about a lot of different stuff today. Uh, through his ownership in various companies, Tim has aggressively invested in the single-family houses space, primarily in Northern Texas. Tim has completed over $1 billion in real estate investment transactions, including acquisitions of more than 1,300 houses. So, hey, Tim, uh, welcome to the show. How you doing, Eric? I am so good. I, I've always been impressed with the breadth of, uh, of your experience in this uh, industry, and it started with REI Expo is how I met you. But let's go back way further. How did you even get into real estate? Uh, well, my grandmother would have told you I tripped into the business. Um, but in all honesty, when I got out of the Marine Corps in uh, 2001, I was looking for a job. And I posted my resume on a website called militaryhire.com. And another former Marine actually hired me as his project manager. So I had a little bit of construction experience. I had a lot of experience managing people uh, in combat, not really construction, but hey, you know, sometimes there's no difference. Uh, and uh, that's how I got, I mean, you know, I, that's how I got started in the business. I started out managing the projects, the remodel projects, and then just slowly morphed into acquisitions and then went out on my own. So you didn't even have any background with construction or no family in real estate. You just, you really did trip into it. No, no, no. Uh, I, I, well, my grand, I didn't finish the quote from my grandmother. She said, I tripped into it, but I cut my teeth on it. So my grandfather was a real estate broker. My dad's a real estate broker. My mom's a real estate broker. My wife's a real estate broker. Real estate is very much a family business. Okay. It was in your blood. But investing wasn't. There, there, there were no investors in the business uh, or in the family. Um, you know, the glorious story of why I went to the Marine Corps wasn't post 9-11. It wasn't some need to serve the country. It was because my family had no money to send me to school and I had bad grades. So <laughs> the Marine Corps, uh, they, they did not discriminate against either of those issues. So uh, they were an obvious choice. <laughs> hey, fair enough. Uh, I, I love hearing everybody's path into the business. So, um, so that's where you got your start. And let's talk about how it evolved. I mean, you've been involved in so many things then uh, over the last decade and a half or so. How did it transform? I think it all got started three parts. One, when I got out of the Marine Corps, my gunnery sergeant, who was the guy kind of directly in charge of me, gave me Rich Dad, Poor Dad, the book. Uh, and it may have been the second book I ever read, maybe third. Uh, I'm not sure. Um, I didn't read much, but that book just kind of spoke to me because I wanted to be rich and I didn't have a rich dad. And here was this, you know, rich dad, poor dad thing. Um, so that book kind of got me interested sitting at home late at night. I bought a Carlton sheets course, uh, never opened it, uh, but paid the 300 and something dollars. I actually did open it, but then when I opened it, you didn't know which book to read or CD to use first. And there was a big pamphlet that said, call for customer support. And as soon as you called, they wanted another thousand dollars. And then they would tell you which book or tape to listen to first. So, um, 
from there, I, I said, there's got to be another way to get into this real estate. I want to be rich. I want to be wealthy. I love real estate. And, and uh, I think I do at least. So I went to a local networking meeting, ARIA, here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. It was called Aereo back at the time. And I just remember being struck that this was, I was 21, 22 years old. We all see those kids walk in there now. Um, and it was just amazing. Uh, people were willing to help me. People were positive. People there were all these resources and nobody wanted a thousand dollars or me to give them a credit card. It was just, uh, just really helpful people. So, I mean, that's kind of, it was exposure through the book and desire through the infomercial and then, um, opportunity through the networking group. Um, and that's actually, and then from there, that's what got me to really put my resume out if I were to really, because uh, I sold a life insurance when I first got the Marine Corps. So then I put my resume out wanting a real estate job and that's how I met the other Marines. So, uh, you know, I started managing properties for them. And then about six months later, he taught me the acquisition side. Um, and then I got to start buying. And uh, so now I was buying and fixing and uh, doing this owner finance sales. This was back in 02. Uh, so what is that? 18 years ago. Uh, and then that was before Dodd-Frank or even the Texas lease option bill. We were still allowed to do contract for deeds back then. Uh, yeah. I mean, after a year, I decided I wanted more. And that's where I called a guy at Homebusters. I've been buying wholesale properties from. And I said, I want to, you know, come work for you. And he hired me and I was number one in the nation and bought acquisitions for him. And then I'd met this hard money lender that we had done business with over there. And I called him to be my lender because I was going to go on my own. And then he offered me a partnership because he goes, I like the way you do business. Let's partner. And so then we built a portfolio of about 65 houses in two years. Uh, Cause you know, and I still, I was making six figures a year, but I was like, had only like, you know, six bucks in my bank account because I was young and making a bunch of money. Uh, so it was really nice to partner with someone like Scott Horn, who was uh, very well versed in the industry and had a lot of money at his disposal and could uh, kind of help me grow up over the next couple of years. And then I got back to Homevestors uh, in 05 when I met my wife, Jennifer. She had a franchise. Uh, I bought a house from her. The joke is that I made more on the house than she did. So we got married to keep it all in the family. Um <laughs> uh, so home homevestors is also a matchmaking company. I, I did not know that. Yeah, 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 it is. Uh, so, you know, from there, uh, after the recession, we made it through the recession, you know, with our marriage and finances intact, uh, the Great Recession. Uh, after the recession, all the real estate clubs had dried up. And um, that's when I just decided that I, I, I miss homevestors. I miss the annual networking event. Uh, and I missed the involvement with the local group. It wasn't altruistic or anything. I wasn't trying to give back to the community. It was just a, a great idea, I thought. So that's when I started the REI Expo. Uh, and then through the REI Expo, I met a lot of people like you, yourself, and other influential people in the industry outside of just Dallas. That's when I got to speak. At, <laughs> this is a long, how did I get here? Uh, <clears throat> that's how I, I was invited to speak at the Five Star Conference. And then that's where I met Blackstone, 
when they recruited me to help start B2R. And then I ran that for two years and I said enough. And I came back to Dallas and grew a beard and stopped wearing a suit and tie. And you went back to regular old real estate. Well, yeah, pretty much. Well, let's unpack it a little bit. Uh, for people who aren't familiar with the Homevestors brand, uh, where have you been, first of all? Because the We Buy Ugly Houses has been, how long has it been around now? Uh, they started in 96, I think. So 25, 26 years, probably. And they've never really given up on the uh, sort of the outbound marketing experience between billboards and radio and, and TV. They've really been uh, one of the biggest players in the space, even during the, during the downturn. I, I remember seeing their billboards in the Southern California market here where I'm at. Um, they've always invested in those. So um, for people who don't know how it works, uh, talk a little bit about Homevestors and what being a franchisee even means. I think, you know, Homevestors is a really good ramp into the business if you're ready to go full time. Um, you know, it's, they pay a franchise fee. It's been a while since I've been on that end of it. It was 15 to 50,000. I'm sure it's still somewhere in that range. Uh, you could do either like the full time uh, franchise or the part time associate franchise. Uh, and you paid these, you had to do this monthly advertising commitment because that's the big, the big part of the model. You're going to generate leads, right? Uh, and I tell people all the time, you, if you want to be in this business, you've got to be generating leads somehow because, you know, someone's not going to come knock on my front door and offer to sell me a house, right? I mean, they, they got to know about me somehow. Uh, and so, and then with Homebusters, there's some really intense training. There's a lot of support. Their technology is ever evolving with regards to these cool iPad apps that tell you exactly what to pay for the house. Uh, and um, uh, then you buy the house and you typically pay a fee, a transaction fee and a royalty fee when you buy and sell the house. So, I mean, that's, that's the gist of it. Typically it was a five-year contract and a lot of people would leave after the, the fifth year. Um, a lot of people, I'd say, if I remember correctly, it was between about a third would leave after their first contract or during or after their first contract. Uh, and, you know, another third would stay for another period. And then, I mean, you know, you've got a good bit of people. I mean, some of the top guys in the system have been there for 15, 20 years. And you don't own an area. And I, I know out here in the Inland Empire, I think the last time I heard there was a seven different franchisees. So if uh, somebody were to call off a postcard or a billboard, it's an, an 800 number, if you will. And it sort of does the round robin and whoever picks up the phone. <laughs> um, so, but I, it's just so interesting to me because depending on what market you're in, the advertising, LA versus the Inland Empire or Dallas versus Galveston, you know, it, it's it does the amount that you pay for the franchise vary depending on the market. Now, it's, 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 it's the same fee across. Now, where it's going to vary on the market is the amount of uh, kind of your cost per lead, uh, you know, uh, because like you just said, advertising in downtown LA or downtown Manhattan is going to be very expensive. Uh, advertising in the Inland Empire, less expensive. And, you know, Homevestors has a pretty good, I mean, I love their system and, and, and I'm sure they should still do it this way. It's kind of every month, like 30, 45 days before the month, 
we would sit down as an ad council. And at one time, the Dallas ad council had like 25 people. And we would all talk about our budget. Like, so this is, you know, we'd talk about our budget 45 days from now. And we'd make a commitment. So I may commit to spend $5,000 in October. And you would commit $5,000. And the kind of part-time guy would commit $1,000. And we'd all pull our money together. And that's how we would go out and buy the app. And so then the call rotation software was kind of a weighted distribution. It, it, it is a round robin, but it's weighted off of the amount of money you spend, right? So you picture Wall Street, where I know you have some experience, right? You end up with your capital stack, right? And you own a slice. And so you may get the 8th, the 15th, and the 22nd call, right? I mean, that, that may be where you fit in the stack. Uh, whereas the big guy that was spending 20 grand a month, he gets the first, the fourth, the eighth, you know, and he's, he's really chunking away at this fact, but he had to pay, right? And he had to put the money up sometimes 60, 80 days in advance of when the final ad runs or when you're going to get that phone call. So um, I always found it was when you don't know, as you know, a lot of times uh, an investor can really have to make some harsh decisions between which advertising medium or which list or which method. And so the nice thing is, is that home investors literally for two to $3,000 a month, I don't remember what the minimum was. I want to say it's 2,500. Uh, you could really get a potential to get a lead from multiple, you know, from billboards, from TV, from internet, to radio, to print, to the yellow pages, that kind of thing. So I think it lowers the barrier of entry for someone that's interested in the direct sales approach of kitchen table buying, uh, because you're able to let a national marketing firm with almost 30 years of data make the advertising decisions for you based off your budget. That's what I always thought was really interesting. And I, I just wasn't sure at, at the model. So down at the local level, you guys are the ones making the advertising decisions that are more specific to the market. Yeah. Yeah. So, each kind of MSA would have its ad ad council, uh, and that, and everyone that, and every active franchise was a member of that ad council. In Dallas Fort Worth, we had the DFW ad council because what would happen is it's the same TV market, so we had to agree. Uh, you know, so the ad company ad investors would come in and make a recommendation, like you know we think you guys should spend one hundred and fifty thousand dollars this month. And that sounds like a lot of money, but remember, you're dividing that up by like 25 people. And they'd say, we allocate this much for TV, uh, but, you know, Fort Worth is its own territory and Dallas is its own. So you guys got to agree that Dallas is going to pay 60% of the TV and Fort Worth is going to pay 40%. So it, it's, I mean, it's a business meeting. It, it, it's, um, and it, it gets fairly complex. Um you would ask earlier if you owned a territory. You don't own a territory. You actually are committing to only advertise the business in that territory that you bought the franchise. Mm. So I wouldn't have been able to advertise out back in the day. And I haven't seen the new UFOC and all franchises have a offering circular. So uh, I haven't seen it. I'm not disclosing anything. Insert legal jargon here. Uh, <laughs> I don't care. Uh, the uh, the way it would work is I would buy a Dallas Plano Arlington franchise in the MSA, and 
But if I got a lead in LA, I could buy that house. I, I was allowed to buy anywhere. I just wasn't allowed to advertise outside of my territory. That's the way it worked. And where I found uh, some of the franchisees that I knew, that where they got frustrated is they were also creating business on the side. And, and the only reason I bring it up, because you're very familiar with Homebusters, and I know there's yeah. other higher brands out there, but whatever leads you created outside of the brand, you were still paying a fee to the, uh, the company, correct? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So in the franchise agreement back in the day, I think you could have one or two exemptions per year as long as it was a uh, personal property. Ah. Uh, yeah, it, it, but if, if it was any transaction, whether it was your mom's house that you were buying from the family that you're gonna flip, you, you, owed, a, you owed a transaction fee. I was just really interested from a data perspective. I mean, with that much sophistication, sophistication at the national level, 30 years of experience in the space, um, and then also that I didn't realize that's how it was set up, the ad council approach where you were getting some input from national and they would see across the entire country what was working and what wasn't. Did you see them change a lot of what was converting as far as marketing, whether it was the, the mailers or the billboards? Any thoughts on that? Oh, absolutely. Because there was always a marketing fund that you paid into as well. And the marketing fund, and that was like... Other, I think it's 150 or 250 dollars per closing, but the I loved paying that money because that money went into this pot. Every franchisee nationwide would pay it, and the ad company was always beta testing AB letters, new list, uh, responsive landing pages, different internet copy. Different. If you ever see the billboards, you can really notice it in Dallas. There's always a new billboard being tried out, and they're always track and they've got charlie calice runs the advertising company that does homevestors um and that guy is an, is, a, is a genius I and mean, uh, his his uh, ad science platform is 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 something that i'm i'm very envious of and, and so yeah so th th that was the nice thing right you know many investors they get into this business and they start oh should i do green postcard yellow postcard red postcard what should i you know, and, and, and you did have someone from national coming to every monthly meeting telling you what they thought you should do and, tell, and, and, and showing you the response rates of the beta test they ran in Sioux Falls or they run a beta test in Dallas and Atlanta and Jacksonville simultaneously to make sure that all samples kind of responded the same. One time we sent out a, uh, this one was not popular, uh, we sent out a pill bottle to landlords uh like tired of the rental headache call homebusters um <laughs> uh, yeah so they called the cops instead uh it, it, it was yeah it, it was not a good beta test but you know Creative. it seemed like a good idea uh, what was inside the pill bottle just a letter like a, a pamphlet that you know you said please call home tired of the rental property headache call homebusters just the wrong kind of conversion okay there you go yeah well, just to have that kind of insight, especially if somebody's new, it just it's interesting to hear how it works, knowing that there are several one eight hundred offers. But the we buying brand, we buy how ugly houses brand has been definitely out here that I've seen in the market the most prevalent uh, for the last decade or so. Yeah, they're training support and resources. I, I haven't seen a single platform that touches it. I mean. They, they, they guarantee you the financing if you buy along their their numbers. They 
have this iPad app. I guess they still have it. It's been four years now uh, where they just import your comps and you, you just walk through a house and hit buttons and it tells you what's, you know, your maximum allow- allowable offer. And it never failed. You get the new franchisee that would uh, uh, go way over that because they thought they knew everything. And then they get mad that they couldn't get financing. So it, it's, if you're, if you're too creative, Homevestors may not be right for you because it's a system. You're paying a lot of money, which 50000 isn't a lot of money, but by the time you get an office and buy advertising and things like that, it ends up being a lot of money. So uh, I mean, you're paying that money, so you might as well follow the system. Well, and to have somebody that really looks at the conversions and what's seeing what is, I mean, $50,000, if you had to pay a full-time marketing person, um, that's, yeah. Anyway, right. it's just interesting to know how it works. Okay. Um, so you're no longer part of their brand at all, right? No, uh, I was a um, franchisee and development agent, um, yeah, which meant I bought houses for the comp- with the comp- through the company, but I also had about 40 offices nationwide that kind of, I had sold them their affiliate, their small version of the franchise. And um, I kind of managed and mentored and helped them. Uh, so it was, I guess, late 2016, I sold that, my franchise and my development agency. Okay. Uh, I, but uh, that was, you know, again, it was about a year after I resigned from Blackstone. Um, and uh, I was just at a point to where I was kind of ready to live that life that we all talked to investors about living. Right. Well, it's a lot of work. I saw I saw you hustle. I was uh, I was very impressed when you were working on REI Expo. Um, you were great at the relationship building side. You were very specific in your approach. Uh, REI Expo was a, an expo that you, education expo that you put together in I think several spots. But I watched you do it in California, and you eventually ended up selling that to Think Realty. Um, but to execute the kind of success that you did is not easy, especially coming into an area <laughs> and finding the partners to make it successful. It's, it's not easy. I mad props to you driving numbers, <laughs> not easy. And you were able to pull it off. And in the years too, you're right. Uh, real estate investment clubs really went down. I think we learned out, we learned quickly who were speculators versus investors during the downturn, uh, especially right. in markets where we got hosed. <laughs> uh, you could be breathing and make a lot of money in the right years if you were holding, but man, if you were holding in the wrong years, not cute at all. Um, right. I ran into the CEO of Homevestors at the National Real Estate uh, Editors Association. They they have an annual conference and he spoke and it was the first year I had seen him on stage and then the iBuyers were on stage. And I was just like, this is a match made in heaven. And I talked to, I think it was Open Door later that day. I'm like, why are you guys not partnering with the Homevestors brand? And they at the time were so... They were spending so much money in the uh, in the advertising space. They're like, we can't take the risk of handing this to somebody who isn't going to back our brand and to close. They were being control freaks, and it's interesting to watch how that morphs as they're trying to vertically integrate. Realizing I can't spend a hundred thousand dollars a month per market on advertising and not say yes to every <laughs> lead that comes through our door. So if I'm spending $1,000 in the Sacramento market and I'm like, yeah, we can't buy your house and I don't have somewhere for that lead to go, that's not going to work. So right. if you're a... Well, it's funny. It's funny. You just mentioned two. So I'm very familiar with Open Door. Uh, when we were with Dwell Finance and the Blackstone Company, we ended up giving them a line of credit. Uh, 
and obviously I've done a lot of business with them and met with them here in Dallas. Um, it's funny, you're talking about two companies that blame not doing business with each other for protecting their reputation. <laughs> and yeah. frankly, it, frankly, if they go online and read about their own reputation, that may give them some homework to do. <laughs> I understand where they're coming from, but you're right. The amount of money that they both spend on marketing is really good for Main Street to watch. I mean, they're very sophisticated. They spend a lot of money on sophistication. Um, right. let's, let's go to B2R. I mean, you transitioned into the Wall Street space and it was so interesting to me to watch. I was invited at the um, in Las Vegas, the Association of Private Lenders, Apple, AAPL, um, had a conference where B2R came out and talked. And you were the translator at the time. Wall Street was talking about Wall Street, and it was interesting to watch them uh, speak. And then sort of you in the room <laughs> sort of talking to the rest of the people, trying to get them to sign on. Um, and the conversation when they first showed up was, we're going to take over the world. We're going to refinance everybody and everything. Oh, so much to talk about. What do you think about, let's just talk about how, so B2R, it started with Dwell. Is that what you said? Well, no, no. Uh, so uh, B2R actually started out as B2R. Uh, we ended up acquiring Dwell from, uh, we acquired Dwell from Gregor Watson out in California. Okay. Um, and, uh <clears throat> So, but, but it all started out as B2R finance. And the whole idea with B2R finance was going to be, we, we you know, we, like you said, we, we were going to refinance the world. Uh, and uh, we tried, you know, we, we, and we did a good job of it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, my role there, I was head of acquisition. I was head of sales, marketing, and business development. So my role was really to get the customers in the door and then get the customers to understand the product and get them all the way through the finish line and then go develop, go develop strategic relationships to generate more customers. Um, but yeah, I was kind of a Navajo cold code talker for a couple of years because one, one example, I'll never forget. I'm talking to this uh, guy that was one of the, he was a chairman and I, I won't say his name, but, um, and everybody, everybody in the room is talking about BIPs. Okay. Yep. And at this point, I bought over a thousand houses and I had no idea what a BIP was. <laughs> right. So it's a basis point. We all know that now. Uh, and they're talking about DSCR. And I had no idea what DSCR was. No idea. Uh, and they're talking about LTV. And I'm like, I know what LTV is. Uh -huh. And they're talking about SF. Yeah. Well, well, hang on though. And they're talking about SFR. And the SFR, I'm like, okay, single family resident, got it. Uh, so I stopped the conversation and I'm like, guys, I don't really understand some things you're talking about. But I got it, SFR, single family resident. They go, no, single family rental. And I was like, you sure on that one? Because like those of us that have been doing this for a while, it's single family residence and MFR is multifamily residence, not multifamily rental, but they changed that term, like literally that acronym now, five years later, means something different. It now, I mean, according to Wall Street, SFR is single family rental. And 
So then I, I <laughs> you can talk about that in a minute. But then I go to LTV. I was like, guys, I know what LTV is. LTV is just a percentage of what the house is worth. Mm-hmm. And they go, no, LTV is a percentage of what they're paying. And I'm like, no, it isn't. That's loan to cost. And so literally in the commercial world, in the Wall Street world, L- value was whatever you were paying for. It. Whereas in this single family investor world, value is like what it's going to be worth, you know? Uh, and so that was that. And then I got down to like, what's a DSCR? They're like, you know, the debt service coverage ratio. I was like, yeah, I mean, I still don't know. Like, you're going to have to like teach me. I've never, they're like, well, haven't you gotten a loan from a bank before? I was like, yeah, like 500. And then they've never talked about a DSCR. Uh, it's always been a loan to value. And the loan to value had nothing to do with what I paid for it. The loan to value had to do with what the appraisal was for. Uh, and then I was like, and this whole bit thing, are you saying blimp or bit? And uh, they were like, you know, a basis point. And I'm like, no, I don't know a basis point. Like, I mean, so, yeah, I mean, it, it was, <clears throat> I fit in well there because I, 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 they all got to laugh at me a lot. Uh, but also, I was not afraid to say when I didn't understand something because I'm a constant learner. And um, I learned a lot in that two-year period. And I think I was able to teach them a lot about how to work with these customers. Because if I didn't know it, at my experience level, the odds were Mr. Joe that had five houses or one house definitely wasn't going to know. Well, I'm a marketing guy, so I will tell you now, it, it changed markedly when you came on board and you really did act as their interpreter because I remember seeing their very first booth there with their marketing materials. I'm like, this is terrible. None, this is a room full of hard money lenders and we don't even know. <laughs> They're like, we don't speak this language. And sure enough, you yeah. came on board and definitely helped. So what did they, you said that, you know, the goal was, I mean, I remember them saying, oh, we're going to refinance the universe. What? What happened? Why, why didn't that work? Well, we were on our way. Uh, we had done a little over a billion in loans in early 2015 when Blackstone just hired this new CEO. Uh, and the president, John Beecham, who now, I guess, has probably bought more hard money paper than anyone ever in the United States, uh, was, he was running the company. I was the managing director. I reported technically directly to him, uh, the, the chairman for a while there. Uh, we were on this mission. We weren't, we were interested in other things, but we were really focused on making our product better and getting more people to borrow money. Uh, but the new CEO came in and, and we bought lending.com and we uh, bought Dwell Finance and we bought Jordan Capital Finance. And uh, there was this article, I think in the Wall Street Journal, uh, uh, we were going to start like financing dishwashers and like all the household goods that investors put in the houses and this customer ecosystem. And like, before you know it, there's this new CIO and this new CFO and this new COO and this new CMO. And, uh, you know, I'm getting put out to pasture because, you know, the founder is always the dumbest person in the room. Uh, and, uh, you know, they, they tried to just recreate the wheel and turn the company into something it wasn't. It failed miserably. And now, and now it's all simply a uh, finance of America commercial. Oh, okay. And now it's doing great because it's now it's back to um, let's just loan investors money. 
So they're doing bridge lines. They're doing new build construction. They're doing the old portfolio loans. They're doing the one-off rental loans. They're doing really well. Uh, and it's nice that they have a uh, residential mortgage company that's kind of steering the ship because then the, the leaders there, they speak our language. <laughs> they're not the, uh, they're not the Park Avenue uh, office type that are going to uh, really make it too complicated. Uh, the Main Street definitely, to me, has a very different feel from Wall Street. So it was, I was very interested. You sort of were an insider in the real estate space who sort of uh, showed up. And I, it was an interesting journey to watch. You definitely improved them. I just didn't know what happened on the, on the tail end of that. What do you think that they... Is there room for Main Street hard money? Um, I mean, I don't think Wall Street's going to go away. I think COVID-19 is interesting. I know here in California, they disappeared right quick. Uh, but I don't know how you start a, uh, you know, a foreclosure <laughs> division uh, quick in states like California, where the state of emergency, you've got a problem because our governor pushed it down to the local level. So you can't process a foreclosure. You're not allowed to evict. If you do it wrong, you could be fined a thousand dollars. I mean, holy cow, a lost mitt department in overnight. Wow. Um, I think they're going to come back just because with interest rates being so low, people are going to look for yield. I mean, what do you think as far as Main Street versus Wall Street and the private money space moving forward? You know, I used to tell the guys on Park Avenue that uh, this is a relationship business. Mm -hmm. And um, just look at the PPP loans. That first round of PPP loans, any real estate investor that had a good relationship with a small bank Bam, right through, got their loan. Uh, those that were in line waiting for Chase or Bank of America or Capital One, uh, they got left out in the first loan uh, round because they're too small to have a relationship with that big of an institution. Now, Ruth's Chris, they got a big one from Bank of America because they were a massive company. Yep. Um, so I, I think that Main Street hard money always has a place. I mean, at the end of the day, I think all this sophistication has taught us all something from leverage to warehouse lines to warehousing uh, to selling loans uh, on the secondary market. Um, so I think it, it's helped push what was a comfortable closet industry into a little bit of professionalism and probably uh, uh, probably normalize things a little bit. Um, but I think as long as a hard money lender focuses on relationships with their customer, as long as they focus on not charging, I mean, you got to remember in 09, uh, 2010, the going rate for hard money was 18% interest and 2% origination in Texas. In yeah. 18%. Yes. Wow. I mean, yeah. literally like, and now you can get it for 10 all day long. All day long. As a newbie. Yeah. And so I think it's helped the investors. And I think a lot of, I, I still know some guys here in Dallas that are charging 12, 13%. Um, but they close in one day. They don't require appraisals. They always have the money. They answer their phone and go look at the house within 24 hours. So, I, I, I think my answer would just be there's always a place for Main Street in this business because 
Wall Street can never move fast enough for all the transactions. And then our people, right, the Main Street people, my people, are lazy, right? We're unorganized, and we're ADD afflicted individuals. So if you make it easy for us, we will pay an extra couple points just to know that, you know, I didn't have to fill out my, get my kid's birth certificate to figure it out the next month. Yeah. They still want a lot of paperwork, don't they? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and they have to, because they're warehousing the loan. It is amazing the amount of due diligence that the warehouse providers do on every single loan that is put onto those facilities. I mean, it is just amazing. I'll never forget. We had this big warehouse line with Citibank and they were like, Oh no, we're going to need to see credit scores. And now they were going through the list. I was like, what? I mean, we've already done the loan. They're already paying. Blackstone is guaranteeing it. They got like $500 billion. Why do you need to see Billy's credit score? You know I mean? (laughs) But that's just, yeah. And like when we were doing the first securitization, you know, so we did the first Blackstone's invitation homes unit did the first ever rental property backed uh, single borrower securitization. We did at B2R the first multi-borrower securitization. When we had, I want to say like $240 million worth of loans. It was like, I don't know, 150, 200 borrowers, you know, average loan. And it's, that was in April of 15. And I'll never forget the year before that, we're getting ready. We're trying to get ratings from, you know, Fitch and Moody's and Kroll and all Morningstar and all those uh, painful individuals. Uh, and we're sitting in the room. Beecham's in the middle because he's the president, right? And I'm on the left and because I'm the investor. And Jeff Tennyson's on the right because he's the mortgage banker. And directly across the street the, the, from Beach is the managing director of, of uh, you know, whatever rating agency. Well, to that person's left would be the resi team, the residential securitization team. And to the right would be the commercial securitization team because no one could figure out what the heck this was that we were asking them to rate. It's commercial paper on a residential property, but it's backed by commercial income, but we're underwriting it like a residential loan. Like, what is this foreign object? Uh, those were some of the longest days of my life, Aaron. <laughs> Got a, a few more gray hairs than you wanted, huh? Well, I'm literally sitting across the table from this guy who's never left Manhattan, right? Well, I'm sorry, he has to fly to LA, you know? So he's flown over America, hasn't ever really been anywhere in it. And he's asking, he's like, well, what if this person in St. Louis's property manager quits? who are we going to get to manage the property? And they're like, they're like really worried about that. I was like, there's like probably 3000 property managers in St. Louis. We'll just call one of them. I mean, like, do you really not know that? I mean, you know, but they didn't, they had no idea. They're like, Oh my God. And I was like, yeah, look, here's NARPM, the national association of property managers. Look, look at all these names. And they're like, wow. I mean, they were like really impressed that, more than one person in Missouri knew how to manage a rent house. 
Because it's the arrogance, Aaron. They, 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 it's like they thought they created this business. They thought that like nobody owned a rent house before Blackstone. Yeah, it goes back to the Babylonian times, people owning houses and renting them out. It's not a new thing. Well, and did, did Wall Street get bored with buying at the trustee sales? And uh, is that why they started the, the hard money side of the business? Or are both of those going full steam ahead? They're no different than any investor I've ever met that, that started loaning money. And it's just a natural progression. And I bet your dad is this way. You know, they start out buying some houses. They like it. They start making more money. They like it. They start making more money. They like it. Then they realize with all these banking relationships and their knowledge of the houses, damn, people would pay them twice what they can borrow the money for just to loan them money and help them get a deal done. And, you know, Blackstone was doing well with the securitizations uh, and, and the buying of the trustee sales. Obviously, as the seller's market started heating up, uh, they, they were losing uh, not only the good deals, because you remember there were times they were paying par. Oh, yeah. A lot of their acquisition criteria had to do with what's the replacement cost of the home. Mm-hmm. And as you know, probably from your data, almost always a house goes back up to the value before the last recession, before there's another dip. Yep. And so they were just, they were kind of marking it to market. They're like, all right, this was 350. Now it's 250. Everyone's saying it's worth 250. You couldn't build it for less than 325. That's a good deal. Let's buy. And as that number got kind of up to the 325 and they figured that the top of that market was like 350, then they figured it wasn't going to provide the long-term yield that they needed. Um, and, and it's, you know, they use this fancy term called gross margin. Uh, I'll never forget this billionaire is asking me all these questions about gross margin and what, what gross margin I buy houses at in Dallas and stuff. And I'm over there with my phone Googling it because the billionaire's in the room. I don't want to seem stupid. I'm like, what is a gross margin? And I had to like, look it up. I was like, oh, okay. Then I had to like figure it out. I was like, okay, so if that's what it is, what do I buy? That? Like, you know, I don't know. Uh, so it was fun. Um, now I think that they are now just more opportunistic versus, uh, carnivorous. I mean, they, they, they saw the story behind the Blackstone buying thing is one of the, uh, co-founders of invitation homes ends up in a neighborhood in Los Angeles and with like a flat tire. And one of the neighbors comes and he parks in front of, they park it. He doesn't park his driver parks in front of the house. And they're changing the top and they're trying to, I think they were waiting for a tow truck or something. I don't remember. But one of the neighbors comes out and says, Hey, if you're here about the house, it already sold last week on at auction. And uh, the guy goes, yeah, what for? And he told him, he goes, well, what could you build that house for? The guy's like, yeah, twice that amount it would cost to build it. And he's like, that's simple. And so literally this founder like ends up, in a airport uh, meeting room with John Gray from Blackstone. And they're like, why don't we buy a billion dollars worth of this stuff? And they're like, okay. And they shake hands and they buy a billion dollars worth of houses. Now that it's interesting to watch the market mature. Um, uh, you're right. Uh, here in California, they went hot and heavy. I think it was 2013 and they were buying for almost full value at trustee sale. So uh, 
knowing that they were. We all called them stupid, didn't we? We sure did. We sure did. Well, it definitely squeezed uh, the trusty sale buyers. Um, you really had to know what you were doing. If uh, we joke on the podcast, it's just a hard business to be in. If you're an amateur, it's really hard to show up. They'll they'll run you up just so you never come back. You better know what you're doing when you show up with those cashier's checks. It might not be fun. Yeah. But you know they they got out of the California market, uh, so they've been moving. Uh, and then the hard money loan came up. And now I, about a year ago, I was introduced to an intermediary. Uh, I talked to John Turek. Um, and there was another one who approached me that was going around to hard money lenders and buying their paper. Um, what they told me at the time is like, oh yeah, there's lots of people doing it. We're very conservative. We only take on 10% leverage. I'm like, wait, you take hard money loans and leverage it. He's like, yeah, one of our competitors takes on 90% leverage and we package it up and sell it to Wall Street for bond rated paper, as bond rated paper. I'm a what? So you're telling me you can sell this pooled with leverage to pension funds? They're like, yeah, everybody's so desperate for yield. I guess I'm scared that, you know, I'm looking at COVID-19. I'm looking at the government, uh, what they're doing with evictions and moratoriums. Right now, private money is not protected. We are not backed by a federal entity. So who's holding the bag? I mean, that, that, that's a good question, Aaron. I mean, I, I went on record in March of saying that I was predicting how values would go down at least 10%. Um, a lot of that's probably the scars I got in 08, right? Really in 07 when it all started. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. I mean, this is the most confusing time, the most – when you read what smart people are saying, I mean, the Dow's <laughs> up. And and we're just uh, – Mark Dotsour said on that webinar I did, he said, Helicopter money. We can't just keep printing helicopter money and flying around neighborhoods, dropping money out of the helicopter. Uh, but that's what we're doing. And it's about to happen again. We're about to spend another couple trillion dollars. Uh, Aaron, I mean, have you heard that the new the EIDL, if you didn't get the $10,000 grant, you're going to get it no matter what. Oh, wow. They're going to come back and just, oh, yeah, that's what they're talking about in there. I mean, like, literally, like, so, like, oh, and by the way, it's for every company you own. So I applied for five companies for EIDL money. And I only got like $1,000 per company because I'm the only employee in the company. Oh, that's right. They so, I'm gonna, so I'm going to get like $45,000 extra in grants. So I don't know if they keep giving me free money. I guess people don't have to pay rent. And, you know, my grandkids can just live in Moscow. <laughs> it's, it is very confusing. Well, how, tell us about the Texas market. How are you guys adjusting to COVID? And are your, are, do you only do flips? Do you also have rentals? I've got a lot of rentals. Okay. I, I, I've had one tenant that I'm, I, I have real estate in Florida and um, California. Uh, as, as far as the hard money business, we've had a, two people ask for help. As far as rentals, I've had one tenant ask for a little bit of a break. I mean, what's Texas been like? We're 100% occupied. We have 100% payment rate. Not one person has been late. Uh, <laughs> we've had, I think I've renewed seven or eight leases since COVID started. Uh, I think what you're going to see is, except for those low-income 
people you probably never should have rented to anyway. Uh, people are really valuing where they live right now <laughs> because we're all being told to stay there a lot more. So if you're the type of landlord that my wife and I are, we provide a quality product and we treat people with respect. We're not slumlords. Uh, I think, you know, I, and I've always said this, and it's, it's, it's never more true than now, right? There's three, ba- we taught this in school, there's three basic necessities in life, food, water, and shelter. Mm-hmm. Farming is way too erratic and now is only for the big boys. I, I don't know how the hell you sell water and make a living. Uh, but by God, I know how to provide shelter and, uh, that investment, it's an, it's the best in place, an inflation index annuity with an under underlying asset base. So I love my rentals. Uh, we're doing great. We just like you, we told everyone, if you're having problems, let us know. Uh, so far it's just been amazing. Like one tenant, we were going to up the rent a hundred dollars a month. Backstory: It hadn't been increased in eight years, and we we were planning on them moving out this summer. They wanted to stay. Anyway, they said, "Well, how about we do seventy-five, and we'll do a two-year extension?" I was like, "Done." <laughs> done, uh, done so done. yeah, I mean, uh, and we just replaced the air conditioner and stuff like that. So they're really what we're seeing is by being good landlords and treating people with dignity and respect and providing a good place to live. Um, our rentals are really performing well. Now, what happens when the $600 extra a week runs out or they stop dropping money out of the sky? I, I don't know. I, this whole thing, it, 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 it's like I'm in a movie that was written by a two-year-old. There's no plot and I can't even understand where we're going. It It is very difficult to follow from the federal, state, and local level. Are, are you seeing a lot? Uh, I know there's a lot of Californians uh, sort of diversifying out of the state. Um, and I know Texas is one of them. <laughs> Do you see a lot of investors coming your way? You know, we have for 10 years now, Aaron, and, and you just need to like, keep them there. The, the wall we need to build needs to be like around California. We need to keep you all there. And here's why, though. Like we're starting to turn blue. So the whole reason all of y'all are coming here is about to change. You know, I mean, we're going to have a state income tax. Like it's just, it's driving me mad. No. Yeah. I mean, obviously Texas is a great place to be. The market's still on fire. The last set, we, we flipped several houses during this pandemic, this zombie apocalypse. Uh, and I'm sure you watched the news this week and you know that Texas is a hot spot. It's worse than New York. Uh, but there's no one dying outside my house right now. Uh, we're, houses are selling above above asking price uh, in record days still. Mortgage rates just dropped to, what, 2.5%. Uh, so I think we're going to see prices continue to climb until, until our government stops printing fake money and making everyone happy and just deals with this thing. Uh, I think you're just going to see a continuation of the status quo I'm just worried about the backside of it because eventually they have to stop. And um, are the appraisals? I, I don't know for those price increases. Yeah. Really? Oh yeah. Wow. Yeah. That makes me nervous long term. The same thing is happening in California. I have a lot of flippers that are reporting that like 
I'm getting $50,000 more than I thought I was going to get, but you've got an empty product. You don't have to deal with people now going through the house that aren't qualified. It's just really an interesting time. Um, we've only got about nine minutes left. I, I want to get a little bit more into what you're doing. You sort of slow down a little bit. You're not doing the Wall Street thing anymore, the Homebusters things. Why, why did you decide to pare down? I mean, it's kind of, I went around talking at seminars and things about be your own boss and spend time with your family and all that. And I spent a lot of time not with my family, telling other people they can be with their family. Uh, and then uh, my oldest was about to graduate high school. He graduated last year. Uh, so just kind of late 17, early 18, I said, you know, I'm going to spend as much time with him as I can. Uh, and I have a 10 year old that I want to spend some time with. Uh, I'm only 42, so when I, when I get rid of the 10-year-old, I'll be in my 50s, and maybe I'll work hard again then. Uh, I, I've got a great team, Aaron. I mean, just a, and they don't work for me. We're all just kind of partners. Uh, so we actively send 5,000 postcards a week. We spend eight to 10 grand a month on marketing. We buy anywhere from three to five houses a month. Uh, typically, keep one as a rent house take one as a flip and then wholesale the rest. Uh, and so I don't look at the houses. I don't sell the houses. I've got a great uh, father daughter team that does all that for me. I own an insurance company. We insure uh, houses for real estate investors across the nation. Um, but I've got a great partner, Andy, that's been a real, uh, an insurance agent for 30 years that has already sold two companies. Uh, we insure a little over $175 million worth of assets across the nation. Uh, we've got about 1,700 customers. We've got the best coverage out there. It's all replacement costs. It's all through Lloyd's in London. Uh, earthquake coverage, wind coverage, water coverage, hail coverage. Just uh, It's great. It's great. It's actually the homevestors preferred uh uh, insurance company, and that's where I knew them from. And then when I left Homebusters, I couldn't use their product anymore. So I called the CEO and said, "Let's make this available to everyone." Uh, and we did. So uh, it's great. It's it, it's a great product. Uh, I use it myself. And it's always great when you own a business and you can say, "I'm like the men's warehouse guy, right?" I mean, uh, not only am I a customer, I'm also You're vertically. Well, but I was also customer number one. You know, I mean, because it's all technology based and. If I can't figure it out, then my customer can't, and I'm not telling my customer about it until we get it where I, where it's easy for me to explain. Uh, so, if I go back to your rentals, it says that are so your form of marketing right now is all your deals are all coming because of mailers. Yeah. What's uh your response rate to mailers right now? Um, I don't know. Three to five houses a month. <laughs> the we call those conversions. <laughs> so good for you. Okay. No, that's all. No, I, I can tell you though. Hang on, I can tell you. I can tell you. I can tell you. I know the numbers, man. Um, I always get asked that question. This is the data-driven podcast, so if I I know it's going to come up, if people are going to give me a hard time if I don't ask, but you know, three to five. Hang cool. on. Uh, we get about a one point three percent response rate. Okay. Uh, of of those, um, uh, let's just call it one percent to make easy math. Uh, of those 50 to 60 calls a week we get, we go on anywhere from 15 to 20 appointments. We really screen. We do a really good job of 
not screen. We just set up the we set up the sale, and if they're not really motivated, we don't go because if they're not really motivated, they're not going to sell at a number that I'm going to buy at. So we just don't go. So if you if you were doing the sales funnel right, we send five thousand postcards. We get about sixty phone calls. Let's just call it fifty, so it's an even one percent. We get fifty phone calls. We go on twenty appointments. So what is that, Aaron? That's forty yep. percent. Um, so then we go on forty percent of lead to appointment ratio, and of the uh, of the twenty appointments we go on each week, that's eighty in a month. Uh, we buy five on average. Well, we buy four on average. So we'll just do four. That's a what twenty percent? Okay. That's yeah. Good. Okay. So, and it's so like, I could trickle that through a spreadsheet and tell you my conversion rate, but I just haven't done it. No, that's good. Um, so you don't do any SEO or paid ads online? Um, so I've been working, and that's actually my new project starting the July 8th. I've been publishing new web pages every day, uh, two new ones every day. Uh, kind of we buy houses in Blank City and Blank County. Kind of built a template and I'm just optimizing it. I've been really happy with the uh, and I am so on Monday, Marketing Monday, I sit down and uh, I go through and create the new web pages. Uh, I, 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 I kind of thought about hiring someone to do it, but they just couldn't understand what I wanted to happen. Uh, so it's been fun. Uh, my uh, impressions I'll give you a number real quick. So after three weeks of consistency, I'm opening up the Google Search Console right now. They recrawled my, recrawled my site today, took on performance. So on July 8th, I had one impression. Uh, on July 26th, I had 159 impressions. So that's, you know, uh, my average position's up to 52, which sounds horrible, but uh, that's, again, three weeks worth of work. So, uh, I'm gonna have you to know, my click-through rate... I'm going to have to follow up with you next year because uh, I worked for a company in the construction space where we almost had somebody not come work for us because we had a bad website. <laughs> so, you know, if conversion, if somebody gets a mailer from you and starts looking at you, looking for you on the internet and you're not there, um, it'll just be interesting to follow the next year for you. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I've got several pages that are ranking in the top 10 in position on impressions and that's just in a couple of weeks. So that's kind of my, my little focus right now is to build up the SEO. Uh, and I'm running about $10 a day in Google pay-per-click uh, and just letting analytics run in the background uh, to really look at customer behavior, see where I'm losing people, let the learning machine learn. And then I'm going to go to my ad company and say, all right, now fix it. Yep. Nope. Good way to do it. Um, what kind of stuff are you Looking at as far as trends, what do you look at as far as data um, in the business? You know, people really have to learn to define their target customer and who they're converting and then go chase that customer. Don't just market to a zip code because that's a zip code you earn you can make money on. Uh, and, and I've seen a lot of people really honing in on kind of their farm area and uh, picking an area that they convert well in and uh, really trying to exploit that area. You know, data trends, obviously now you can, uh, you can uh, overlay uh, demographics and even uh, financials underneath the, the tax parcel data. Um, you know, I, I, that's getting better and better every month. 
So you can really look at LTV and the last time they refinanced and how long they own the house. And, you know, and, and what people should do is even if they're just not that active in the direct advertising, get on a bunch of wholesalers list. And I tell people this all the time, look at the properties that they're marketing and then go research the underlying characteristics of that property and figure out because that's, you know, it's, it's a subject. It's a target case of someone that sold to someone really cheap. So uh, even if you don't have a large enough sample size, by observing the marketplace, you can start doing your research and you can form the data set that can then kind of build yourself a smart list uh, and uh, you can do less with more. Yep. I love it. Or more with less. Yeah. Yes, thank you. More with less. <laughs> so I do less I do less with more because I'm lazy and I have money. <laughs> there you go. Well, if people want to con- uh, connect with you, where should they go? Uh, TimHarridge.com. That's very good. The only well, place I live. And I'll, one, one final thing, just because if you had to start over from scratch, brand new, where would you start? <sighs> I would have got... <laughs> I, 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 I'll tell you where I would have started in this business. When you've done it long enough, there's all these neighborhoods in your town that you drive by and you remember a house that you sold. Uh, and now that house, the dirt would be worth 10 times what the house was worth, uh, 10 years ago. Uh, I would have kept one more house a year. That's it. One more house a year, because this is a marathon, not a sprint. As I know your dad would say, uh, and if I just kept one more house a year, I, I did the math the other day, I'd probably be worth about 3.5 to $4 million more. Right? Coulda, shoulda, woulda. I hear that a lot. I, I'm the same guy. Wish I would have bought more in 09. But uh, hey, Tim, I really appreciate you. <laughs> Thank you for taking the time to do this. This has been a, a fascinating journey through so many different facets of this business. Any ideas on trends coming up? Technology that you're excited about? Yes. Um, you've got to find the bottom third of the market. You've got to leverage property radar or whoever, whatever market you're in, find someone that, that can give you the data. Find the bottom third of the market. The bottom third of the market is going to be the hottest segment of any market for the next two to three years. Interest rates have made it super affordable. Uh, they, you, it's going to be priced way below replacement costs because construction prices are going through the roof. and I mean, I just, that's what people are going to want to live. And the other trend, start looking at data for vacancies in urban areas, because I think people are going to work more from home. So all this technology allowing people to be remote, you know, if you really want to find a good market, get your, you know, now you can get out of LA and you can go way up into the Inland Empire and you get to have the same job, make the same amount of money, but now you don't have to go to work. Uh, Well, actually in person. You can move to Texas and still work in California. <laughs> yes. And, uh, and you can, as long as you're in Dallas County, where all those Democrats are, you can stay there. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, like, literally, like, this technology is going to allow people to live in places that are more affordable. And I think the priority that people are going to have subconsciously on where they live, making sure that they have a yard with some personal space, where they don't have someone, where they don't have to wear a mask, you know, walking down the stupid sidewalk. I mean, hey, I live on three acres. I, I don't have to wear a mask when I go outside. 
and I live in Texas, so it's actually still optional, uh, even though it shouldn't be. Probably, I don't. Know. Probably, but all right. Well, no, it's a good point. We've got we're watching that trend as well. Migration trends, but now COVID-related migration trends, even within the same state, county to county. It's going to be really fascinating to watch. All right, I had to sneak that one in. TimHarridge.com. I'm going to post all the links on uh, our community. And if you're on YouTube, you're going to be able to link through that. And I really appreciate you doing the show, buddy. Aaron, it's good to see you again, Ben. Thank you for listening to the Data-Driven Real Estate Show. You can find show notes and links to some of the resources mentioned in the show at datadrivenrealestate.com. Click that join the community and you'll be forwarded to our community where you can even ask questions for upcoming guests, ask questions of current guests. We monitor there and we'd love to engage with you. Uh, Please don't forget to like, favorite, subscribe, and share on any of your favorite platforms. It helps us out a great deal. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.